This is episode 119 of the Swallier Pride podcast, and today's guest is Tamitha Rutherford. She's a graduate of Auburn University with her master's degree in 1992, has been a practicing speech-language pathologist since that time. She's provided services for the adult population in many different environments, home health, SNF, inpatient rehab, acute care, university clinic as a clinical instructor, and outpatient. She is currently in private practice in Macon, Georgia, and her company is Swallowing Specialists of Central Georgia, and she is partnered with a gastroenterologist, Dr. Raymond Bedgood. She went into private practice after 13 years in the acute care setting. Her passion is the adult population, all manners of communication and swallowing disorders, and she wants to provide EBP without the restrictions of productivity or administrative red tape. Seven years ago, her father was losing his battle with lung cancer when a tumor compromised the recurrent laryngeal nerve, taking his swallow and voice. She cared for him during that time, learning what quality of life truly, truly is. And that is when her passion for management of head, neck, and oral cancer began. She is married with two children, a Weimariner, and a one-eyed cat. <laughs> Hope you all enjoy this conversation with Tamitha. She is, oh, she's wonderful. She is so energetic and passionate and just what I think every therapist SLP should embody when working with their patients. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Tamitha. Hello. How are you doing? Teresa, it's good to see you. I am wonderful. Yes, I'm wonderful. How are you? I can't complain. Busy, busy. Good, good. Excellent. All right. So I will tell the people a little bit about you, but can you tell the people who you are? My name is Tamitha Rutherford. I am a speech-language pathologist. I currently work in Macon, Georgia. I've been practicing since 1993 and have worked in every type of adult environment you could possibly work in until about two years ago. I went into private practice and I opened a company, uh, Swallowing Specialist of Central Georgia, and I work primarily with adults. And head and neck cancer is a large portion of my uh, caseload. What what in what inspired you to start your private practice? Um, really, uh, about six years ago, my father was diagnosed with lung cancer. And uh, the tumor ate through the recurrent laryngeal nerve, and he lost his swallow. And so during his treatment with MD Anderson, as well as uh, subsequent hospice, I spent that time helping him maintain a quality of life. And I realized that we weren't doing that as much as we could be doing as medical professionals. And so I started studying diligently and found an incredible physician that I work with. And he said, you want to do this? Sure, let's go. So here I am two years later. And uh, it's it's wonderful to be in private practice. It really is. Awesome. I love it, Tamitha. Yeah, cool. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? I guess it's going to be head and neck cancer because that is my love right now. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, where do you want to start? You know, you um, ask about, you know, inspirational evidence-based research that we use. It's really interesting because I went back to look and say, what did, who was it? Where was it? And I started back as early for me as uh, 2016, doing online conferencing, joining um, as many 
head and neck cancer support organizations as I could. You know, I always got to tote uh, Kate Hutchinson's uh, name. She is amazing clinician. I love to watch her. She just has so much insightful information. But the idea of, uh, you know, use it or lose it or use it and improve it, however you want to say it, that research really kind of echoed what I was feeling in my practice, that we need to do something during treatment, during radiation and chemotherapy to keep our patients moving, keeping them swallowing, keep those soft tissue and muscles moving for the purpose of continuing oral intake. So, you know, that was the impetus for what I do. I was very fortunate to have a good working relationship with the radio oncologists here. And when a person is staged and getting ready to start radiation treatment, they are referred to me. So I actually see them before they start. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's been wonderful. Yeah. So typically, and I think one of the things that I I enjoy about watching Kate and, and some of the other clinicians that I've watched is I really like specific information. So when I kind of go through what it is that I do, it's not necessarily me telling other people what they should do. It's just what I have found. So I hope that that is sufficient. It's my experience anyway. And we can go from there. But usually I, when I bring a patient in, they're usually early on. We want to make sure that we have, number one, is very important to me, is that we have their um, dental health evaluated. I really want to make sure that they get in and get that checked out because even with good dental care before radiation, there still can be issues uh, with radionecrosis, even though there isn't any active infections or caries. It's just, unfortunately, a side effect of radiation. So we start there, of course, making those recommendations. I usually start with the fees. I know that there's a lot of school of thought about modifieds primarily as the diagnostic tool. For me, I want to see the tissues before radiation, and then I actually do a fees after radiation. I still may continue to do a modified if I feel like there's some other things going on, but I really appreciate the clinical information I get from a fees. So that's typically where I begin. We provide prophylactic exercises for the oral cavity, pharyngeal, cough, also some exercises for range of motion of the, of the neck. That's interesting. I know it's kind of, the reality is all those tissues are connected. So we do a lot of stretching of the neck, you know, laterals, extension of the infrahyoids and the hyoids. And I really, I guess, kind of pilfered, <laughs> sort of pilfered. I don't want to say I pilfered. I, I pulled information online. I really like a lot of what goes on in MD Anderson. So I used a lot of their exercises. And I see my patients, depending on their TDRS score, how many times a week I'm going to see them during radiation. What, what is that score? The TDRS. It's the total dysphagia rating uh, risk score. And it's actually a really great, it's a way to calculate the, the potential that a patient will develop dysphagia from radiation. And so it's rela- it basically, it's a pretty straightforward scale. It looks at the T classification, you know, T1 through T4. And the TNM scale classifications. Anyway, the the larger the tumor, the higher the number as far as correlating with a cancer risk. It also looks at neck irradiation, whether you're going to have it uh, unilateral or bilateral, whether there's been baseline weight loss. The primary tumor site also has a real big impact on whether or not they're going to develop a, a dysphagia. The nasopharynx and oropharynx just has a higher correlation with swallowing disorders versus the larynx. And then the treatment modality, whether they're doing conventional radiation therapy or accelerated or concomitant chemo and radiation. All those scores come together and it gives you an overall risk. So 
So less than 10 points on the scale is a low risk. 10 to 18 is intermediate risk. And higher than 18 is a very high risk. That doesn't take into account any other comorbidity. So of course you have to use your own clinical judgment, but I found this to be very helpful in predicting issues. So if they have a low score, then I might only see them once a week because they're not getting, they're not being monitored intraorally like they should be. They're not really being watched for their weight loss, at least where I am. So within the auspice of coming to my office, we check those things out. I use several self-reported inventories, I guess. I like the, the MDA, MD Anderson dysphagia index. I also uh, use the EAT-10. I want to see kind of what the patient's awareness are, which is really interesting because unless patients have a really significant reconstruction, they don't always know they have swallowing issues. Sometimes they really don't have any idea. And uh, so that's another reason why I like the fees so much. It's not so abstract for, for patients to look at. So I can pop up fees on the television in my office and say, okay, see here. Okay. See that? That shouldn't be there. I should never see green. That's my favorite. I don't ever want to see green. No, I really want to see green. I take that back. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but um, so, you know, I've found so far and, you know, I've been at this for two years, so I probably, you know, and I'm not a big cancer center. I'm a very small private practice. So, in this area, I might have seen close to 100 in the last two years. I think we've only had two that did not maintain oral, oral intake the entire time they were in radiation. So I feel like what we're doing is really it's amazing. Hitting it on the, it's hitting the nail on the head. And we're able to modify the diet as they go, which is helpful. Help them with their secretion management. Most important thing I tell them is keep drinking water. Even if it hurts, even if you have coughing episodes, keep drinking water. You've got to keep drinking. And again, trying to keep them on oral intake as, as solids as much as possible. How's that? Wonderful. <laughs> That's awesome. I did last year... I went ahead and took the rehabilitation and management of head and neck lymphedema. So it's not a certification for lymphedema, but just for head and neck with Brad Smith. And, and that's helped a lot because there aren't any other private practitioners here that work with head and neck cancer. So I find myself doing a lot of compression garments and <laughs> lymphedema therapy. So um, I think that head and neck really tends to make us branch out a little bit further, kind of push the, 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 the limits a little bit or just push out of just doing exercises and swallowing. And uh, so far, so good. I, I'm really happy with with our patients and our and our progress. Awesome. Is that, now, forgive me if this is a silly question, Tamitha. Is that like a, like a prophylactic thing, or is that like a post-chemo radiation thing? Like, yeah, okay. it's post. I'm sorry. I no, that's okay. <laughs> totally fine. Totally fine. You know, after radiation, yes, absolutely. It's after radiation, after we've completed you know, they're up to 36 rounds of radiation uh, and chemo. I usually wait two to three weeks after they're done, make sure they're healing. The mucositis is, is better. They're not having a dinophagia. Then we usually repeat the fees and everybody's different. Not everybody develops lymphedema. It seems to be that there seems to be a pattern with the patients that do. So sometimes I get them, you know, a year after they've had radiation, not right afterwards. So I think the, the, the patients that I'm seeing earlier have better long-term outcomes and, but some folks I've seen not from when they were in radiation and they're with me a year later, um, off and on. So yeah, no, the lymphedema is after. That's okay. That's all right. <laughs> no, cause I know you were talking about doing manual stretching kind of like before and during, and mm -hmm. then this is obviously after. So, right. Yeah. 
and most time, most of the time they're doing passive range of motion, never too far. They're doing mandibular opening, stretching, lingual stretching. You know, some of the things I saw online or I'd seen from other facilities, you know, like grabbing the tongue and pulling it. Yeah, I'm not really doing that. <laughs> you know, extend what you can handle, you know, lateralize tongue-based retraction exercises, effortful swallowing, huff cough, breathing. I'm, I'm real big, big proponent for IMRT, EMRT, not necessarily during radiation, but very important. Many uh, cancer patients continue to be chronic aspirators. And so pulmonary toilet is just a, a huge part of, of what we do afterwards. Can you, can you explain kind of how you use what IMRT is and how you use it for these patients? Yeah. Uh, inspiratory mus- muscle resistance training and expiratory muscle resistance training. I use those after radiation when they're dealing with the swallowing issues and the aspirations of secretions. Effortful inhalation has been found to help with the muscle musculature of the respiratory system and being able to breathe effectively and being able to produce a good cough. Expiratory resistance muscle, a muscle resistance therapy through the research and of course in our discipline has been very uh, effective in swallowing and internal musculature strengthening. So we use that after radiation, probably we don't start that till a month or so after. Th- throughout radiation, they're using incentivine spirometry. Okay. You continue breathing deeply. I would say there's probably always a component of respiratory function in all of my therapies, just because you know folks aspirate, so we got to get them cleared out. Awesome. I wish I could say some of these people's names, but I can't say them. It's like all letters and like two vowels. You know, I, I can't. It's like Langen. I can't say his name. I apologize, but not with okay. Yeah. <laughs> so let me see. We also started a support group here. There was not a support. We didn't have a support group for head and neck cancer within a hundred miles. So we uh, were, we were very lucky to be granted the charter for that, the um, support for people with head, neck and oral cancer. So we handled, we have that meeting once a month in a local area uh, church. And, and that has been a uh, good opportunity for us to not only reach further into the community, but to let our patients feel like they're giving back from their experience. So that's been wonderful for us. Good. Awesome. I think I want to add back to the original reason I do a fees at the beginning is, and and because I want to make sure I do say this, I think that we, well, in my experience as a clinician, when we did swallow studies, we did instrumentals, we seemed to only want to treat the ones that really grossly aspirate, <laughs> you know, oh, wow. I mean, everything went into his lungs. Let's treat him, you know, <laughs> but the reality is patients with, you know, excessive pharyngeal residue who have decreased epiglottic inversion, who have reduced hyalurangeal excursion, these are setups for significant failure when there are larger medical issues that arise. So doing that baseline fees lets me know if there is a pre-existing, even if it's considered a mild dysphagia, to go ahead and address that before they get so far into radiation that now we have a profoundly impaired system. I think that's very important. Plus with reconstructions, when you look at selective radical neck, we can, we can talk about it on the outside. And we can do a modified, but if I don't see what the structures look like on the inside, the symmetry of those structures, I don't know a whole lot about what I'm going to have at the end. So I really like to have a good picture at the beginning. And then again, of course, at the end, I think overall, it's probably been one of the more rewarding areas that I've worked in because these people, they're younger now. Our patients are still working. They have children that are our age children, you know, and definitely didn't think that this is where they'd be. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me, Tamitha, kind of about the, like, I know there's a lot of 
I, I guess, talk to me about like the counseling piece here. Like how much of it do you, I know sometimes we get these patients and it's like, they weren't given a heads up about any of this. No. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I had a little gentleman the other day. He was just raising hell. <laughs> He's like, why didn't the doctor tell me any of this? Why yeah. Me? Yeah. Yeah. He told me more than he told me. And, and I, you know, I, I couch it with saying, you know, their job is to save your life. My job is to try to maintain that quality of life for throughout the radiation, but even afterwards. So, you know, I'm going to be the one answering a lot of those questions. And to be honest, when they go into the radio oncologist, they've just been given this life-threatening diagnosis and the doctors are telling them all the stuff that can happen. You know, they're not hearing half of it. And I think that's another really good component of me seeing them more frequently during the radiation because, you know, somebody says, I'm going to have dry mouth. You have no idea what dry mouth is until your spit is like rubber cement. You, you have no idea what mucositis is going to feel like until it happens to you. And if, if we don't mend it on the front side, now again, I've been very fortunate because I have a really close relationship with the nurse that works with our radio oncologist. So for instance, I had a patient come in today and he said, I feel like I have wax on my tongue. I looked in his mouth. I'm like, Oh, picture, <laughs> you know, here's this patient code. Um, I think we need something. And she's like, tell him to stop by and get some diflucan. So <laughs> We're able to catch it before it is so pervasive that we're in trouble. You know, they, a lot of times, you know, the loss of taste, especially, I don't know about everywhere, but in the South, home cooking, Southern food, it's all, you know, gravy and biscuits and many times savory umami is gone. They don't have that emotional connection to food anymore and preparing them for the idea that they're going to have a new palate. They're going to have a new normal swallow. It's not going to be like it was, but it's going to be, it's going to be there again. It's it's just going to be different. And, And they might actually be healthier. You know, I've had patients that come off their, their insulin <laughs> because they're not eating sweet, sugary foods anymore. I, I give them, you know, I have lots of samples of things like smart mouth mints for xerostomia or mouth coat. Talk with them about oral care, just staying on top of the problems before they get too far out of hand and being there to listen to them rant when they feel like they need to rant. You know, they've been pinned to a table. It's pretty scary. I don't know. Have you ever seen the cancer masks and what they look like and how they, they attach them to the table? It's, it's, it's pretty scary. They actually use a, a type of plastic mesh and they melt it to the shape of their face. And they have these pins that pin them to the table and they put them in four point restraint. Oh my God. For like their 30 or 40 seconds every day for five weeks. I can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my patients, they actually bring me their masks and we, decorate them. We cover them in plaster of Paris and they- Do you make them into dart boards at the end? <laughs> no, we, we make them into like what oh their new life God. is going to be. But yeah, it's pretty hard. Yeah. yeah so they, yeah. like I have a patient who loves his German shepherd and he ate spam the whole time he was in, <laughs> in treatment. So his head is like a German shepherd head with a can of spam in its mouth, <laughs> you know? And so we just have them in the office, you know, they, they bring them and we, and we, it's just part of the, of the recovery, I think, of just trying to remember great things that they had in their life. And or something about their personality that, that uh, really spoke to us. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard for them. So they usually come to me right after radiation because I'm right down the road from the radio oncologist and uh, they'll sit in the office and we'll sit and talk about how things are going and what they had trouble with or what they didn't and, you know, just try to help them problem solve. So yeah, there's a, there's a, a big counseling portion of it. And to be honest, we're incredibly silly a lot of the time. I mean, it's, 
tough and it's hard. So come in here and let's be stupid. You know? <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> let's laugh a little bit because this. Yeah. Fell no, in. I love it. Yeah. I, I, I just think that's, I, I can't imagine, you know, it's like put yourself in, in somebody else's shoes, you know? And, and like, I can't imagine being the doctor, like delivering this news, you know? And it's like, sometimes you get, we get so mad at the doctors. Like, why didn't the doctor tell them this? Why didn't the doctor tell them that? But it's like, I guess really how friggin' much is the doctor going to tell them, going to tell them. Like, well, and, and they have a list and they go, you will have burns, the internal and external skin. You will have xerostomia. You will have mucositis. Um, you may have weight loss. You may need a feeding tube. And it's kind of like reading the labels on, on, pharmacy medications you're like oh my god my hair's gonna fall out my teeth are gonna turn green I don't want it you know but they don't even have the option to say no I mean they do but their their outcomes are not great so even if the doctor tells them they're not going to remember it there's just too much it's just you have to yeah and so this gives them the opportunity to just kind of walk through it and in the interim, we are managing the dysphagia. We are advancing the diet. We are even the minute they're done and they're, they're able to repeat their fees. We do use the McNeil dysphagia therapy protocol here. So we start McNeil almost immediately once they're stable. We just had some really good outcomes. I think the most disappointing thing is still the loss of taste. That's the one that seems to linger the most. Does it ever, do they ever get it back? Some people do. Some people get percentages or, you know, they, 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 they kind of taste salt or they kind of taste sugar, but it's not the full holistic flavor. That's some people. And then others get it all back. I have a gentleman that tells me every meal is like eating cornbread. He said, the worst part is smelling the food because it never tastes like it smells. And I was like, well, you know, oh, that's awful. Well, brainstorm. Well, you know, I've heard of, of ways of, you know, impeding your ability to smell. And he's like, oh no, that I wouldn't be able to smell a pretty woman. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I'm like, okay, then. <laughs> yeah, that was sweet, right? So, yeah, yeah. You know, they're, they're still people, you know? Yeah, completely. Yeah. yeah. And, but so, they're younger. So let, me ask, let me ask you, Tamitha, how, so I, I know we keep going back to fees here. How often, or I, I guess throughout the whole course of this, how many times do you fees them? Like, it sounds like you do them very beginning, then. At the end, like two or three weeks after they're done. Initially, when I started, I, when they would get to their worst status, yeah, if they could tolerate, I did it then. The reality is I know now what's going on and there's no reason to put them through that discomfort. So I usually do it because they're burned up. I mean, they, it, it's rough, but so we do it at the beginning and then usually I will do a fees three to four weeks out of radiation that whole time they're doing the prophylactic exercises and that whole time they're swallowing. So the system is as best as it's going to be at that point. Just knowing what we have left over is, is kind of where we, we begin. And depending on, you know, like I told you, I, I'm very lucky. My, my partner is a gastroenterologist. I didn't know if I told you that. And so a lot of times when my patients are being radiated into the proximal esophagus, you know, he's able to deal, to follow through and do dilatation. So that's working out well. So we're really hitting the entire system. So that puts us in a good place. But yeah, I usually only fees them twice and let, well, that's not true. I lied to you. I'm sorry. And towards the end of therapy, when they're done, I will usually do it one more time because that is the new normal there. I mean, uh, you know, we, we have covered the gambit. This is, this is what we're getting back. This is where we are. And usually by that time, you know, I usually know whether they're still aspirating or not. I'm pretty, pretty sure of what I think I'm going to find. And for them, they just need to know this is your new normal. And if you don't do pulmonary toilet, you may end up with pneumonia and here's some, you know, parameters to it. 
but uh, yeah so usually I guess three times total during uh during the time that they're with me okay all right what else uh, where you want to go now I don't know let me see what else I have here Christmas so with the nasopharynx or the oral pharynx uh, tumors trismus becomes really significantly concerning and especially patients who are more predisposed to fibrotic changes they have a much higher risk for trismus and also certain chemotherapies tend to have they tend to exacerbate the radiation effects more than others and so you know just normal stretching has worked so far uh, but uh, there have been a few patients that we've had to use the or stretch love that device love that device um it has from uh, cranial cranial oil rehab cranial mm, i'm to think of the name of that place sorry okay. you know how your brain fries there yep uh-huh <laughs> i'm not even pregnant right um <laughs> i have no excuse anyway so the oral press or the oral stretch those that that whole um device has been very useful in in helping me i actually had a patient recently that had a significant Trismus set in pretty rapidly. He went from 51 millimeters to 26 in less than 10 days. Oh, wow. Even with normal stretching, it was a really aggressive shutdown. And the only thing we could equate it, the only reason we figured that it was happening was because of the chemotherapy. That's what the the, uh, oncologist said. So we got the aura stretch, started using it, and he's back up to 37 millimeters in like two weeks and it's consistently 37 millimeters so um you know we use a lot of manual techniques as well with that but yeah so you know trismus is also another real significant concern for those folks let me see um i have a few other scales that i tend to use with them you have any idea what you might want me to add no this is all great do i talk too fast no not at all (laughs) okay at all down here i get that a lot you talk so fast oh no (laughs) Oh, yeah, probably because it's not like the typical southern Georgia. Right. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It seems like it's much more involved, but I must be skipping something. HPV, you know, that's probably the the biggest factor right now in my population. It's the largest growing population for head and neck cancer. And the newest research um, coming out seems to think that they're going to be able to reduce the intensity of radiation for HPV, which is going to be great because evidently, the HPV tumors initially were being staged a lot more advanced than they were because they grew, I guess, so large or so rapidly, but they're finding that it responds so well to radiation that they're going to be able to reduce the amount, which is going to have a major impact, I hope, because that is our largest growing population right now. And that's part of one of the things that we're doing with the Head and Neck Support Group. We are going to be setting up a booth for oral screenings for HPV at the, I think we're going to do it at the Relay for Life this year. We're pretty excited about that to be able to get that information out there. What else you got? Oh, did you know that there was an actual assessment for lingual range of motion? Oh, assessment for lingual range of motion. Yes. I didn't know there was an actual, I I did not. I didn't either, but I found it and I had to share that with you. I should do that. Lazarus in 2014 actually put together an assessment of lingual range of motion uh, based on normal, mild, moderate, severe, and profound for protrusion, lingual lateralization, and elevation, which I had no idea it was out there, but I was looking for standardized measures, you know, for evidence-based. I was amazed. I'll have to send it to you, but, uh, cause I'd never seen it before. 
and it's measured in millimeters. So it actually measures the range of motion from the incisors. Awesome. So, oh, did um, did you see the information about the um, the honey protocol? No. Let me just make sure I can get you the information exactly right because I don't want to not quote it correctly. I actually found this information on the SIG-13. Somebody was asking about ways of treating mucositis, maybe more natural ways of treating mucositis. And I think I shared this at the, the inner circle meeting. Let me double check. So there's a whole bunch of research about meta honey, honey as a treatment or preventative for uh, mucositis. I will actually send this to you because I think it's pretty awesome. I have found that it's been rather effective with my patients. We recommend regular, just everyday honey, not, not highly processed. One teaspoon, 15 minutes before the meal. I'm sorry, 15 minutes before radiation, 15 minutes after radiation, and four hours after that. And then it, when adenophagia sets in, when painful swallowing starts, then meta honey is recommended. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't have bacteria. It's sterile uh, for the same purpose. Uh, we found a lot less use of magic mouthwash in that population. It tends to provide a barrier for the pharyngeal tissues and the esophageal tissues. Yes, um, I do remember reading about this now. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's all coming back to me now. Okay. Yeah, Sarah Fulcher was the person that shared it with us. So I've seen it to be quite effective. So I definitely want to share that. Patients have, some of them are like, that honey, it's terrible. <laughs> and then I was like, I don't taste it. I don't taste it. I'm like, well, there you go. It just coats everything. But I think Sarah was also saying they recommended it with breast cancer patients. Yeah. Who would be ready for breast cancer, lung and esophageal as well. So yeah, I don't really see that population, but um I'm, I'm really strictly head and neck, but I think that intermittent modulating radiotherapy has made a huge impact on reducing the sequela of um, untargeted tissue damage as far as reducing the amount of surrounding tissue that doesn't need to be radiated with them moving it around. They're really doing a better job at just focusing strictly on the tumor. I'm fine. You know, years and years ago, it was cut out the tumor and radiate if you have to, and then it was radiate the hell out of everybody. And now it's kind of a mixture. And I think that that has shown really the best outcomes as far as uh, the selective neck and then followed with radiation and if necessary, chemo. The patients, at least on the other side, seem to do better. They seem to do a lot better um, maintaining a, a, a portion of their swallowing throughout as a matter of fact, in, in Augusta University here, uh, Dr. Postma and his group, he's a, an otolaryngologist, they don't even recommend peg tubes for their cancer patients at all, head and neck, which is pretty awesome. I've seen several patients come out of there that are amazing. I went to uh, the Charleston conference for uh, high resolution manometry with Dr. Postma. That was, that was pretty awesome. That's kind of, I guess, the next area we're moving into. That's, that was pretty amazing. Yeah. I enjoyed that. So I, I can see that definitely being a, an adjunct to what we do, learning more about that esophageal um, motility and especially its impact on the primary swallow much more than I think we originally thought years ago. Well, let me ask you, Tim, but I've got kind of two questions here. What do you think is there, I guess, is there a criteria or a cutoff or is it just a way of thinking when a physician will prophylactically place a peg? I think it's probably, well, for sure, it seems to have been the way things were. That's the way you always did it. You have a neck, you have a peg tube. I think that it has a lot more to do with the, if they do place a peg, it seems to be related to the staging 
as far as how much resection they're going to have to have and the impact it's going to have on the swallow before there's the chemo and radiation. Um, I think it also has something to do with the patient's pre-morbid medical status, how healthy they are, how well they take care of themselves. Their support system, I think, also has a lot to do with it, to be honest. You know, if you don't have any way to have meals made and if you're incredibly sick from chemo, it's easier to pour in a can of tube feeding than it is. And, you know, unfortunately, the reality is they just they have to be able to, to survive the treatment and then develop a new life on the other side. So um, I think some of it is old school thinking, but I think a lot of it also has a lot to do with the survivability for the patient. Gotcha. Cool. Thank you. Well, let me ask also, because I've heard different sides of the pendulum with doing exercises prophylactically too. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Like, I know obviously you do them, but I, I don't know what the argument is. I guess some people say, well, there's not much evidence for doing them. I think, well, I think it's twofold. I think that, and and this is mostly, I guess, in my mind, logic more than necessarily being able to cite literature to support it other than a few articles, mainly um, Kate Hutchison, but I've got, you know, Dr. Mann and Dr. Crary over here as well. I think, and, and the majority of what, what I do is range of motion. The majority of what I do is stretching. And I, I always think about like people who have burns, really bad burns and they have skin grafts and the stretching and the movement. And if you don't stretch it and if you don't move it, how rigid it gets. And it's one thing if there's, if there's skeletal support for that area, but within the swallowing mechanism, there is no skeletal support. It's all connective tissues. And unfortunately, you know, when you burn it, you got to move it or it's going to get fixed. And if it gets fixed, we're not going to swallow. So that's, that is my mindset. Most of the time it's gentle stretching in in whichever direction they're, whatever we're working on. So we're stretching the jaw. It's gentle stretching. Not, you know, I, I will say, you know, on a pay scale, I don't want anything over a three, nothing over a three. Don't do anything fast. Do it slow range of motion of the lingua range of motion of the larynx. The other side of it is also, I think, that they are at the mercy of their disease and they're at the mercy in their mind's eye of their medical professionals. This is something they can actively do. This is something they can do to improve their quality of life, to be able to say, okay, well, I'm, I've got this, but I'm moving forward. This is something I can control and I can influence the outcomes for me. And so I, I feel like in a lot of instances, it gives patients some manner of control. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it's, uh, I can see it being controversial, but I also see patients that I'll give you another example. Cause I had a patient like this and I think this was the final impetus for me. I had a gentleman that came to me that had stage three tongue based cancer and they put in a peg tube, radiated chemo. He didn't swallow the entire time. He didn't do any exercises. So when he got to me, I know. Was that just his choice? He just No, didn't... they didn't. They didn't send him. This, this is before anybody uh, really did anything. Gotcha. Um, okay. So he came to me and I took a look. And at that point, I wasn't doing fees. I, <laughs> I went straight into the booth. We did a modified and nothing was entering the esophagus. I mean, it went right to the cricopharyngeus, stopped and came back up and he aspirated. And so I took him to, uh, I sent him to a GI doctor. And actually at that point, I was able to go into the procedures with them. And I went in, his esophagus had fused completely shut. Oh gosh. Because it burned. And then when it grew together, it literally grew together. And despite our best efforts, we were never able to open it back up. So it wasn't that his primary swallow was gone. He just had nowhere for it to go. So he stayed on a peg and continued to spit out his secretion. 
and the reality is if somebody had just been there saying, swallow your spit, drink water, swallow your spit, try to swallow, even if it's hard, swallow, may not have fused. I feel like it wouldn't have, you know, but he wasn't. I mean, he was sitting, spitting out his secretions. He, he wasn't even, he was told not to swallow at all. And, and I don't want to ever see that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know? And so, yeah, I think it's been very beneficial for them and me. I've really enjoyed my patients and I, I, I see them on the other side being, when I see patients that I, that come to me that were never seen by anybody during their therapy and during their radiation treatment and people that I see now, it's like night and day, how they look and how they swallow. And I don't necessarily have all the, the data, but yeah, I know. You know, you look at the swallows, you're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I just think, I think, Tamitha, I think you're somebody that, like, so many clinicians aspire to be like. I mean, you're so, like, you're so fulfilled in what you do. You love what you do. You're so compassionate. You're using all these evidence-based strategies and all these evidence-based scales to help your patients. And I just, I love it. I just, I love I love talking to you because I think, you know, everybody that talks to you learns so much from you, but you speak with such, you know, compassion and understanding that, you know, you're very relatable. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Wish I was a little more organized. That's okay. We can't, we can't be at all. Oh my God. I'm the least organized person in the world. Oh God. You get good outcomes for your patients, Tamitha. Who cares if you're organized? Okay. That's it. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's, I, that's what I, I have Ramona. Ramona is my right hand gal. And I'm like, Ramona, where's so-and-so? And she's like, oh my God, how do you get dressed? I'm like, you know, I don't know. I got a bra on this morning. I'm good. I tell my husband, I make it home every night. So don't worry about me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Ramona keeps me straight. <laughs> like did I do that did I do that I don't, you know but yeah um it's uh it's it's wonderful it's really it's nice to be able to do both sides of it you know I'm not in an environment where productivity is number one that is probably the most important thing to me if I have to hear one more time about my numbers my head was going to spin off I'd spent many years in acute care and in uh rehab and in sniffs and I just you know I'd done it all I've even done home health, <laughs> but, and, and I love it. I love home health. You know, uh, I think that that's a really great environment to provide care to patients, but this is, is awesome because I'm really able to do what it is that I feel like I need to do. But yeah, so um, it's, it's, uh, I'm very lucky and I know I am. Yeah. So do you have anything else to share? Any final thoughts? No, but you got a whole bunch of editing to do. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. No, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. You have to know that like, the people that I know in town, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to be doing this. And they're like, what? I'm like, I know I'm so excited. I don't even know what to say. I don't, you know, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for the opportunity. And of course, and maybe if I do it more, I'll be more organized, but, That's okay. but yeah, I can't say enough about, about working with the head and neck cancer population. I've gotten a lot of, I'm very proud of them. They've worked really hard and I've gotten a lot of uh, positives out of that. I just feel like I'm really making a difference. And there, there was a time when I maybe didn't feel that way, yeah. but I feel like that's what all, all that we, I feel like that's what we all want. You know, we all got into this field to help people. And then for some reason, somewhere along the line, crap happened and yeah, it's kind of like you lose yourself, but can't turn people into beans. Bean counters can't dictate patient care. I'm going to be able to have a good weight on my scale when I die. (laughs) I've done more good than harm. You know, that's my goal anyway. Well, thank you so much, Tamitha. This has been wonderful. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes 
or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.